Well, good morning. How are we going, church? Great to see you all here. Fantastic. Um, welcome, welcome to the service um, from me. For those who don't know me, my name is Chris Bishop, uh, and it's my privilege to share God's word with you today. And I've been really looking forward to doing that with you this morning. Uh, for those stayers, this is the last time you'll see me for the year, so don't worry too much more. Okay. This morning I want to share with you four separate stories of Jesus' interactions in Mark 12. So what was just read is what I'm going to focus on, but I want to talk a little bit, bit about the lead-up to those to that particular exchange by talking about a couple of other exchanges that Jesus had along the way. And by the end of it, I hope to be able to demonstrate to you the attitudes of our heart that see us either far from God getting closer to the kingdom of God, or what we really need to do and the attitudes of our heart that we really need to have in order to enter into the kingdom of God. So got that? By the end of it, that's what we want to do. As I said, I'm going to be sharing from Mark 12, from 1 to 34, but my focus this morning is on 28 to 34, which was just read. But before I do that... Um, who watches um, Road... Who's ever seen Roadrunner? You know, Willie Coyote, Roadrunner? Who watched it as a kid? Who watches it as an adult? Come on. Come on, I don't believe you. I think there's more than that. I think Lee's on YouTube a fair bit watching it, aren't you? Oh, yeah. and, and the interesting thing about the, this um, cartoon for me is the persistence of a coyote. He's fantastic, isn't he? And someone with way more time than me actually looked, went on the, um, looked at 40 episodes of, of this wonderful cartoon. And they came up with some really, really interesting facts. Can anyone remember the brand of the things that Coyote used to buy to try and blow the Roadrunner up? Well done. Well done. Guess how many... Oh, this is across the 40 episodes that this person with way too much time on their hands, looked at. Guess how many um, different traps across 40 episodes were set by Coyote? 260. What are the most common attacks? Boulders, catapults, arrows, dynamite. Most injuries in one episode to the poor Coyote. Have a rough guess. How many injuries? Most injuries. More than in an AFL game. 20. He really suffered, but he kept going, didn't he? He did not give up. In those 40 episodes, he falls from a great distance, you know, not just off a step, a great distance, 95 times. He's blown up 73 times. And he's smashed by something extraordinarily heavy, usually a massive boulder. About 70 times. And yet he never gives up. Just hold that thought. Hold that thought for later on, okay? So in Mark 11, before the encounters that I want to talk to you about this morning, we see Jesus entering into Jerusalem in triumph. And remember, he finds, he finds that they're using the temple as a second-hand shop. Remember that? This is in the lead-up to what I'm going to talk about. And anyone remember what he does when he finds a second-hand store happening in the temple? 
tips them over and he boots them out. And we already know that the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are really unhappy with Jesus because he's actually got a following. He's got the following that they want, hasn't he? So already they're plotting against him. So in counter number one, in, in verses 1 to 12, in Mark chapter 12, it's the parable of a landover, landowner and the tenants. Remember that one? Remember that one? Where the landowner, he plants a vineyard and he rents it out and he goes away. And sometime later, he sends one of his slaves back so he could share in the spoils of the vineyard. And what do the tenants, the people who are renting, what do they do to the slave? Anyone know? They, he beats them up. They beat them up. They, and so the landowner sends another slave and another slave and another slave to try and share in the spoils. And what keeps happening? They keep getting beaten up. And ultimately they kill someone. So then the landowner says, I'm going to send my son. Surely, surely they will respect him. Surely they will look after him. And what do they do? They say, here comes a son. We're going to steal his inheritance. And what do they do? They kill him as well. And when he tells this parable, Jesus says, have you not even read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. He quotes from the Old Testament, Psalm 118. And you can imagine what's going on here. These, this is the Pharisees. These are the people that know the law. They know the scriptures better than anyone. And what does he say to them? Haven't you even read the scriptures? scriptures? So that's a very, very pointed comment. And there was no mistaking what Jesus was doing. He was having a real crack at the Pharisees. If you look at that parable, the rebellious and stubborn Israel, Israel uh, leaders were pulled out. The vineyard itself is Israel, the, the land that God gave them. The slaves that come and get beaten up, they're the Old Testament prophets getting beaten up and killed. And of course, the son is Jesus. So that was a, a really pointed parable. So there's no mistaking the message here. Jesus was having a real go at the Pharisees. Okay, so the Pharisees go, plan B, we, we, we didn't go too well there. So we'll go away and figure out another way to trick Jesus. And I'm going to read you a short passage from the next part of Mark 12. And this is about the taxes to Caesar, paying taxes to Caesar. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Isn't it? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay the tax or shouldn't we? They were really buttering Jesus up, weren't they? They were telling him how good he was. They were setting him up. It reminds me of the story of the man and the woman who met at a stamp collecting conference. You've heard the story, no doubt. They meet at a stamp collecting conference and the man feels an attraction to the the woman and she's got a great 
great stamp collection. And so he starts talking to her, engaging her, and he's complimenting her about her stamp collection, saying it's the best stamp collection he's ever seen. It's probably the best in the world. The woman listens to this for so long, and then she can't take it anymore. And she says, philately will get you nowhere. Some of you will get that. Well, philately got the Pharisees nowhere, did it, in, the, in, that, in that particular exchange. You see, the question they were asking about the taxes, they were really saying, I don't think Jews should pay taxes to anyone else because their allegiance is to God alone. That's what they were saying, so they were trying to trick him. They were trying to get him to say something wrong against the Roman Empire. And what does Jesus do then? Remember this one? He borrows a coin. What, what has the coin got on it? And what does he say? He says, give to Caesar what Caesar is due. And then what does he say? Give to God what God is due. Now think about that. Think about that. Whose image is on us? Whose image? The image this, this is a profound and deep thing. We can't just brush over this. Whose image is on us? We bear the image of God. So what Jesus is saying, give Caesar his money. Give your whole heart, your whole body, your whole life to God because we bear his image. I don't think they picked that up. You see, Jesus recognised there was two issues at play here. The political one, give that stuff to Caesar. But there's a spiritual one. Give yourself to God because you bear his image. Encounter number three. So we've had the landowner and the vineyard. We've had who do you pay taxes to? And this one is the marriage at the resurrection. Remember this one? And this is when the Sadducees thought they'd have a go at tricking Jesus. They thought they could trick him. So... And it was a really weird question because if you know a little bit about the Sadducees, they didn't even believe in the resurrection. But they made up this weird and bizarre story. Remember the story? They quote, they quote Moses and they say, a man takes a wife and then the man dies and the man has other brothers and all the brothers in succession marry the same woman. Her cooking. And then, and then sorry, they all die. They all die along. Her cooking must have been terrible. And they say, at the resurrection, who's going to be married to who? That's a really weird question. They're clearly trying to trick him. And once again, Jesus, he answers beautifully. He says, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Bang! He's got him again. He's got him again. He said, don't you guys even know the scriptures? So here you've got three exchanges where Jesus exposes the rebellious hearts of the teachers of the law in those times. And this is where the roadrunner and Willie Coyote come back in. Does it ever occur to you, why did these Pharisees and teachers of the law keep trying to trick Jesus? 
They never succeeded, did they? Why did they keep doing it? Why did they keep doing it? Have a think about that. I think it was because their thirst for control, their thirst for power, and the, and the need for them to keep their status, it just drove them on relentlessly. Regardless of whether they succeeded or not in these silly little word games, it, the power that they sought in their hearts and they sought to keep just drove them on. Doesn't it show you the wickedness of their hearts and ours? The saviour of the world is standing right in front of them. The saviour of the world is standing right in front of them. But because of their own self-righteousness and their arrogance, they couldn't see it. See, Jesus was a perfect fulfilment of the law, but they couldn't see it. They didn't see the problem. The problem's not out there. The problem is in here. With them and with us. The wickedness of our hearts. So let's get to encounter number four. So after these three exchanges, something even more interesting happens. The scribe, or in some translations he's described as a lawyer. He recognises that Jesus is not going to be tricked by any word games. He's way too smart for everyone. So he actually asks a sincere question. He's not trying to trick Jesus. He asks a sincere question. He wants to know what's the most important command of all. And I'll read it to you again. Then one of the scribes approached him. He'd been listening to the discussion and noticing how well Jesus had answered them. He put this question to him. What are we to consider the greatest commandment of all? The first command and the most important one is this, Jesus replied. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. I am well answered, replied the scribe. You are absolutely right when you say that there is one God and no other God exists but him. And to love him with the whole of our hearts, the whole of our intelligence, the whole of our energy and to love our neighbours as ourselves is infinitely more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Then Jesus, noting the thoughtfulness of his reply, said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After this, nobody felt like asking him more questions. Don't you love it? Jesus shut it down. No one else is going to pipe up because they know what's going to happen. So isn't it interesting? Here we've got these encounters. We've got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, and finally the scribe. They all knew the law better than all of us put together. They all knew it. But guess what? Not one of them was in the kingdom of God. Not one of them was in the kingdom of God. So let's have a closer look at the scribe. See, as I said before, he didn't see Jesus as a threat. He simply came to ask a question because he saw how well Jesus had answered all the other questions. And any good Jew knew the answer to his question. What is the greatest commandment of all? 
It was a verse that Jews recited day and night. So when Jesus said it, the Jews even knew it. They knew it. Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus. Deuteronomy was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And Leviticus is, love your neighbour as yourself. So Jesus, again, is pulling out the scriptures and quoting it back to them. They knew this. But what do you notice? If you look at the lead up to this little discussion, what do you notice about what Jesus says? What characterises what he answers here and all that's gone before it? What's the difference? Anyone see it? Absolutely, absolutely consistent. Um, these are two commandments that are about love. Do you get it? These are the commandments about love. See, Jesus' response is simple yet profound. He says, love God with your whole being, with everything you've got. Give him everything. And in turn, you will love your neighbour as yourself. Notice, he, do, he doesn't actually answer the question because the question is, what one commandment? But Jesus gives him two. Doesn't that tell us something? It tells us something and says, love the Lord your God is first, that's primary. But if you do that, you must love your neighbour as well. There must be an impact on your life that, it, that, that compels us to love our neighbour as well. They are inseparable. He said, these two commandments are it. And isn't it fascinating that the scribe agrees with him? The scribe agrees with him. And Jesus says to him, oh, I find this really interesting. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Isn't that fascinating? Not far. He's not in, but he's not far. So what's left for the scribe to do? What is left for the scribe to do? If he's not far, what else does he need to do? Well, if we go right back to the start of Mark, when Jesus was preaching, he said, this is in Mark 1.15, he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what does the scribe need to do? He needs to repent and believe in the gospel. Because you see, knowledge of the law, even agreement with the law, is not enough. That's the message that Jesus is trying to get across this morning. We need to get the point of the gospel. Because if you take yourself back to those days, Anyone know how many laws there were? 600? Yeah, 613. Well done. There were 613 laws in the Torah, which was the first part of the Jewish Bible. So this is why all these questions are coming up. So the question that the scribe asked would have been a question that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law they would have talked about all the time. Ad nauseum. 613. Guess what? 
There were 365 prohibitions, one for every day, just in case you lost track. And there were 248 positive commandments. And so these sort of questions would have been bubbling around the temple all the time. Because there was a lot of disagreement between the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes. Which ones, the, which ones are most important? Are there ones that are weightier than others? Are there ones that are light and heavy? And you know what the scribes' job was? The scribes' job was actually to make rules about the rules. To go into every intricate detail so that you knew how to act in every particular circumstance in accordance with one of these 613 laws. I mean, you thought bureaucracy was a modern invention that you only found in a bank and a council. Not true. Not true. 613 laws was certainly something to keep, keep you on your toes. So can you imagine the questions everyone would have had about the law? What happens when one law contradicts another? Who gets to decide what's a light law and a heavy law? Which ones would you, should you obey if there's a contradiction of some sort? Is there some sort of moral scorecard that you have to keep? Who keeps it? Does the Pharisee keep it? Do I keep it for myself? If I cheat on my moral scorecard, is that a really bad one? Or is that sort of light and can I ignore it? Can you see what's going on here? The questions are about, they want to see what they can get away with. That's what they want. They want to see, you know, where's the line that I can actually push right up that line, get away with as much as I can, but make sure I keep those important things. That's, that's what the question is about. Do you see that? And we do the same too. Let's be honest with ourselves. We do the same. So let's think about it. What is the scribe really asking? And maybe I've got an illustration that might work. Maybe not. Let's see. What is the scribe really asking about? Who plays golf? Who plays golf well? Who plays golf badly? I wish Montez was in the room as well. So if you look at the rule book that the, the US Golf Association has, it's got 156 pages in it. That's a lot of pages. That's a lot of rules, isn't it? That's a lot of rules. And you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure within the rule book it says you're not allowed to kick balls out from under bushes. You have to count every stroke that you have. You have to do all that sort of stuff in order to play golf, right? In the right way. But if someone came up to you and said to you, what's the point of golf? What's the point of golf? Now you could say to them, well, you know, if you hit the ball in the, in the, the bunker, that's the thing with sand. You're not allowed to put your club on the ground. And when you swing, you do this. And if you hit it in the water, you've got to pull it out and you've got to drop it in a certain distance. And when you hit off from the tees, there'll be two things like that. You're not allowed to stand in front of them and don't talk when people are putting. Do you think they'd have any idea what golf was about? No, they wouldn't have a clue. Even if you've never played golf, you know what the point of golf is. What's the point of golf? To get that little ball, used to be always white, but sometimes now all different colours, get that little ball in that hole. That's the point of golf. 
So you can't describe it with all the rules. What's the point? And that's what the scribe was asking. What's the real point of all these laws? What is the commandment that trumps every other commandment? Do you see? Do you see that? And so Jesus answers him, love God with all you have. Love God with all you've got. And love your neighbour as yourself. And as I said, it's fascinating that Jesus says, you're not far, scribe, from the kingdom of God. As I said before, all he needs to do is repent and believe. So as we reflect on this, the kingdom of God, it's not a case of what you know. None of these people in these stories were in the kingdom of God. It is not a case of what you know. But rather it's a case of who you know. It is a case of who you know. The only way into God's kingdom is by who you know, and that is by Jesus. You see, the law couldn't save those Jewish leaders, and the law can't save us now. All the law does is show us that we need to be saved. And you remember in Matthew 5, just after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually raises the standard of the law. He says, you have heard it said, do not commit murder. And then what does he go on to say? He says, if you're even angry at someone, you will come under judgment. Who can keep that law? None of us. So friends, that is why we need Jesus. He's the only way to God. And we can only get to know God through the person of Jesus. Jesus is not a concept or a theory. He is a person. And the only way to get to know God is through Jesus. That's the point of what Jesus says. So what do you reckon would have been a great response for the scribe when he heard Jesus talk? What would have been a really good response? Um, I repent and believe. <laughs> Absolutely. I know I need a saviour and I fall on my knees and I give my life to God. That would have been a great, a great response from the scribe, would it not? So as I'm, as I'm wrapping up, let's have a look back over these three, three or four, four encounters. As I said, not one of them, not one of them is in the kingdom of God. Yet Jesus walked and talked and his message was very clear. But their hearts were hard. The Pharisees were full of self-righteousness, weren't they? They actually wanted to get out of doing stuff and they wanted to make other people feel bad. There was no grace, there was no mercy. They were far from the kingdom of God. The scribe. Jesus himself said, you are not far from the kingdom of God, doesn't he? But he wasn't in the kingdom of God. What did he need to do? He needed to repent and believe. 
And Jesus gives us two important reminders about what we need to do to be part of the kingdom of God. Let's not miss them this morning. Let's not miss them. We bear God's image. And what did Jesus say? He said, give to God what is God's. In other words, we bear God's image. We are God's. We need to give our whole life, our whole heart, with all of our strength, with all of our mind, to God. And he also says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And love your neighbours. You love yourself. This is a deep, personal relationship with your Creator. That's the only way to the kingdom of God. You know, C.S. Lewis said there are two types of people. There are those who say to God, Thy will be done. And there are those to whom God says, Thy will be done. Do you get that? Do you get that? In other words, there are those who want to be their own God, who want to run the, their lives their way, thank you very much, and no one will tell me, who won't submit to anything except their own self-absorption. They live for themselves. They, they are self-righteous in that sense. Maybe they think they can save themselves if they do enough good stuff and not too much bad stuff. But in the end, they live for themselves. And then there are those who understand and acknowledge their need of a saviour. That's what the scribe needed to do. He needed to understand and acknowledge that. There are those who understand and acknowledge their need of a saviour. And that saviour is Jesus. There are the, they see their own rebellion and sin. And they humble themselves before God. And they accept his grace and forgiveness through the person of Jesus and they surrender everything they've got to God. There is no in-between. It is one or the other. My prayer for all of us is we don't miss that message this morning. See, the kingdom of God is about knowing God personally. Through Jesus. And my prayer for all of us today is that we choose to enter into that deep personal relationship with God through the Saviour of the world, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you. Our hearts are full of gratitude because you love us, because you pursue us and by your grace you brought us back through Jesus. You knew that we could not keep that law. You knew our rebellious and sinful hearts. And so you sent Jesus to live amongst us, to die, and then you raised him by your power to open the way for us to have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. Thank you for that, Father God.
May each and every one of us today fill with gratitude, renew our commitment to give our whole selves to you in and through the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.